I'll be reading verses 13 to 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Pray with me. O God of salvation, God of mercy, I pray, O Lord, that this text would speak to all of us and that we would worship through the preaching and hearing of your word and that we would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through this. I pray in Christ's name, amen. In the Philippines, there was a people group called the Taboli, and there still is a people group called the Taboli. And translators went there to bring them the word of God. And while they were there, they observed some things about this people. They realized that this, the Taboli did believe in life after death. And their understanding of it was that when somebody died, their spirit came to a bridge and you had to cross this bridge. On the other side of the bridge would be some sort of eternal life. But on this bridge was an evil spirit. And this evil spirit's job or attempt would be to push you off of the bridge. And if you got pushed off of the bridge, you would end up into an eternal abyss. But the only way to overcome this evil spirit was to have enough light inside of you. They believed that the way to attain light was actually through burning your skin. And so moms and dads who love their children and are seeking what's best for them would take swabs of cotton, dip it in kerosene, light it on fire, and put it on the limbs of their children. They believe that the more scars you had, the more light you had. And the more light you had, the better chance you had of eternal life. This practice continued while the translators were working among them. And it was when they were working through the Gospel of John. And they got to John 8, 12. And the people heard Jesus say this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Without the light of the gospel, it is pitch black, soul-crushing darkness. And the glory of God does not shine. But that is the point of What Paul is getting at in this text is that if people do not hear the gospel, they will remain in that darkness. And so Paul is getting at here that we have a privilege and a responsibility for the sake of those who are lost. 
But Paul does not begin in Romans 10, verse 13. He begins in Romans 1. And he gives, throughout the book, a diagnosis. What is the human condition? And in that diagnosis, he weaves the cure. Romans 1 Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. But then he says in verse 16, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of us know that, but we forget verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, he says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But in that same chapter, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the, and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 7.24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The diagnosis, we are all under God's judgment. Sin and death reigns, but the cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are few texts in the Bible that are as encouraging as this. That there is a certainty that we hold to that no one else can. No one else has the certainty because they don't have a God who is not only willing but able to save. That's why we can sing blessed assurance. We have confidence that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a possibility or an option or a maybe, but will, definitely. But he's connecting this. He didn't start here. He started in even 10.9 as we just read. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But the question arises, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? What is Paul getting at when he's speaking about this? And I would propose to you that it's more than a cry for deliverance, but it is an act of worship. I'll give you a small smattering of where this text or where this phrase will appear and you will see that its context is much more than just a cry for deliverance. It's an act of worship. In Genesis 12:8, Abraham, it says that there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. 
In Psalm 105.1, says, Hallelujah, give thanks to the Lord and call on his name. Many believe that this is the psalm that was sung in 1 Chronicles 16 after the ark had been brought back to the people of God. This was a song of praise. In Zephaniah 3.9, the Lord says, Because then I will change the tongue for peoples in its generation that all might call on the name of the Lord and serve him under one yoke. And in the very next verse, the Lord says that they will bring his offering. In Isaiah 12, 3-6, Isaiah says this, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Sing and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That sounds a lot like worship. Joel 32 is the one that that Paul is actually quoting here. And in that context, it's speaking of the day of judgment, God's great day that comes, and those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is those who faithfully are have been brought into the people of God and call upon the Lord as Savior who will be saved. And Paul works backwards from this point of, in its mo- his most practical fashion of, okay, if it is those who worship the Lord that will be saved, then how is it that they get to this point, humanly speaking? Well, first, he says in verse 14, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They must believe in him in order to call upon him. Again, in 10.9, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. This confession must come from the heart. It must be genuine. And in Paul's day, to say something like this was high treason. You better believe it if you're going to confess that Jesus is Lord. This is not an easy believism where you just confess that Jesus is Lord and say that Jesus is Lord, but you live however you want and you don't know him actually as your Savior. Rather, it is a confession that Christ is the one who bore the wrath of God for us in our place and rose from the dead in our place. The Reformers put it well, I think, to help us understand what it is, as they would say, You must understand it, you must believe it, and you must trust in it. So what is it? Is it true, and is it my hope? To have faith in a particular doctrine, an institution, or a religious act is so unbiblical and foreign to the New Testament. But you cannot believe what you do not know, and you will not run to who you do not trust. As Isaiah even said, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that he is exalted. In verse 3, he says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
salvation happened before calling upon the name of the Lord. It was a response to his salvation. There was a translator in Cameroon named Lee Bramlett, and he was working among the Hadi people. While he was working among them, he was trying to figure out, how do I communicate God's love to these people? He realized that every, every verb either ended with an, an E, or an I, an A, or a U, except for the word love, and he couldn't figure out why. And so he was talking to some of the other people, some of the people that were helping him with the translation, they were native speakers, and he asked them some questions. He asked them, can you devi your wife? The V was the word for love, and he added the word I to, as the language works. And they said, yes, but that means that you once loved her, but the love was now gone. So he asked them, could you devi your wife? And they said, yes, if she brought you water and made you meals and was faithful to you, then yes, you could devi your wife. He asked them, could you devu your wife? This word, he hadn't seen it before. The men began to laugh and said, you would never say that. If you, if you did that, that would mean that you loved your wife no matter what she did. Even if she didn't bring you water, didn't bring you meals, or she was unfaithful to you, you would keep on loving her no matter what. And then he asked them, could God devu people? And something clicked in these men as there was a heavy silence and tears started to trickle down their face. And they said, asked him, do you know what this would mean? This would mean that God loves us no matter what and that no matter how great our sin and that we have rejected him all of these years, that he kept on loving us. One simple vowel changed their understanding of the character of God and what the gospel is, that the gospel is not based on human actions, but what God has done for us. For those of you who think grammar doesn't matter, it is huge. But he's getting even more basic. How will they believe if they haven't even heard? They must hear in order to believe. Read with me again in verse 14. And how were they to believe in him um, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Still over 41% of the world's population are unreached. Three billion people are out of reach of the gospel. There are one and a half billion people who don't even have a Bible. That is more than the entire continent of Africa. There are 180 million, at least, that don't even have a translator working among them to even begin giving them one word of Scripture. Part of the question that 
at least for us, that we begin to ask is, maybe it's not just about need. Because there are needs everywhere, all the time. And needs need to be met. But what if our priority should be access? What if it's not so much about where is their need, but where is there the least access to the hope of the gospel? And I think that's what motivated Paul. In Romans 15, verse 23, he tells the Roman church that, I hope to come to you. I have no more work in this region. And I hope to come to you and then go on to Spain. Was Paul saying that there was no needs among the people that he was at when he wrote this letter? Or that every single person had become a Christian and uh, every Christian was fully mature in Christ and uh, there was no, nothing left for him to do but to move on? I don't think so. I think he was motivated by where is there the least access to the gospel? Where is there, as he'll say, that he wants to go where, the, where Christ has not yet been named, where Christ has not yet worshipped? There are millions like the Tiboli or the Hadi people or the Yambeda. They will never know that Jesus is the light of the world. And they will continue to run from God and generations will follow after them. The list of verses that they will never know are legion. They will never know in the beginning God. They will never know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. They will never know of God's love. They will never be able to sing Amazing Grace. They couldn't turn to the book of Romans because it doesn't exist. Their children's song might go something like this. Jesus loves me. This I don't know because the Bible has never told me so. Well, some may ask often in situations like this, is what about the innocent man in the jungle who is innocent but has nobody to tell him about the gospel? What's going to happen? Well, I think Paul has already given his answer throughout the earlier parts of the book. But another example we have is in Acts 10 when there's a man named Cornelius who is said to be a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. This man sounded pretty faithful. But he needed Peter to come and tell him who Christ was and what he had accomplished in order that Cornelius might be saved. Which brings us to Paul's next most obvious point. Well, someone has to tell them if they're going to hear. It's pretty basic, but it is necessary to think through. As Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It comes by proclamation. People must hear the gospel. 
we cannot live in such a way that people will look at your lives and say, wow, I'm a sinner, save me. It comes from the hearing and the preaching. Some also object sometimes that, can't they learn English? We have plenty of English Bibles. Give them an English Bible. Then I challenge you to learn Greek and Hebrew, to learn your Bible. And we'll see how often you read your Bible. Uh, We have a plethora of English Bibles, and it is still a struggle for some of us to open it and read it. Uh, Many of them can't even read and write. Uh, They don't even have a language written down. Um, So there are many processes to take place. But some will also object, well, what about a Bible in a different language that's maybe uh, the trade language or a language of wider communication? Can't they read that? You know, maybe Spanish is is one of the national languages or French like Cameroon or something like that. Why couldn't they read one of those? In 1980, at a Good Friday service, Leonard Biliocchi was brought up to read John's passion narrative to the church. And year after year, the people had read this passion, or heard this passion narrative from their French Bible. But recently, a translation had been done in Yambeta, the local language. And so he was asked to read that translation for them. And as he read John's passion narrative from it, the room became heavy, women began to weep, and after he had finished reading, people rushed up to him and said, where did you find this story? We have never heard anything like it before. We didn't know there was someone who loved us so much that he was willing to suffer and die like that, to be crucified on a cross to save us. But they had heard the story year after year after year in French. This is why Bible translation is so important because not only can you just tell them, if you started talking to me about the gospel in Chinese, we're not going to get very far. I don't understand it. I need to be communicated to in a language that I understand. Just like these people needed to hear the word of God in their language. Cornelius needed Peter to tell him the story of God's redemption. How many Corneliuses are out there who when they hear the gospel, they will believe? And as Brother Barry said earlier, salvation is secure. Christ came to die, not to just make it possible, but to secure it for those who believe. But they will not believe unless they have been told. Which brings us to the next point. Paul says, well, they must, people must go out to tell them, so being sent is essential in order for the proclamation of the gospel. Paul wasn't expecting everyone to go. Paul wasn't writing to them, well, therefore, your whole church should now move to the outermost parts of the world. Some scholars believe that Paul is giving a reason why he is going. He's going to Spain. He's going to be stopping in Rome. And he wants them to know, this is why I'm going to these places. And when I come, I want your help to get to these places so that they may have the light of the gospel. 
And it need not be said that although Paul may not be speaking to every single Christian to go to the outermost parts of the world, but every Christian has been commissioned to go and preach wherever they are. We ourselves, though, we are going to Papua New Guinea where there are 300 language groups in Papua New Guinea alone that still do not have a single verse. There are 800 languages total in Papua New Guinea. And some have translation, some have portions, some might have a New Testament, some have nothing. But although we are going, the nations are coming to you. You have an incredible privilege and opportunity, and you know that. But this isn't a, a guilt trip that, oh, you should be sharing the gospel more. No, this is, you have a king who has won a war, and you get to be his herald. But we are so thankful that we get to go, and that Fisherville is a partner with us. It speaks volumes of the church that loves the gospel and is willing to be a part of taking the gospel to the nations. So we are so thankful for this church. We are so thankful for individuals from this church who have also partnered with us. But whether someone goes overseas or someone stays here, no one, not one is better than the other. Both are so critical to the work of the gospel. Some have said that one is going down the well and the other is holding down the rope. Well, if I'm going down the well and you're holding the rope, or whoever it might be, both are going to bear scars. Both require sacrifice. And so we are so thankful that Fisherville is a church that makes sacrifices for the gospel. Finally, he says that how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What makes it beautiful is not the person or the feet, it's the message. This language of preaching good news is so critical because Isaiah uses it twice and the New Testament borrows from it. In Isaiah 52, 7, how, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What do these texts have in common? Isaiah 61 sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus read this text in the synagogue, the beginning of his ministry. But these texts are in the context of a king who reigns and has won the war. Christopher Woodsworth penned in 1862 in his hymn, Who is this that comes in glory? Trumpets sound with jubilee. Lord of battles, God of armies, he has gained the victory. He who on that cross did suffer, he who from the grave arose, he has conquered sin and Satan, he by death has beat his foes. 
Sadly, not everyone will believe the gospel. But some will. Paul writes in 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Obedience to the gospel, the greatest act of obedience, and the ultimate act of obedience is faith. If you want to know what the unforgivable sin is, it's a lack of faith. Not believing in the Lord is what will ultimately be the destruction. But Paul is in line with other uh, texts. Jesus himself said, repent and believe the gospel. In Matthew 6.29, Jesus says, this is the word of God, the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But they did not believe the prophets. They did not believe Jesus. They did not believe his apostles. And so if they, when they do not believe you, be of good cheer. You're in good company. But God's sovereignty is what compels us knowing that Christ's death was not in vain. Christ's death was to guarantee that those who believe, who call upon his name, will be saved. And that compels us to go. And that also brings us to the hope. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This faith comes by hearing the gospel. A gospel-produced faith is a faith that calls upon the Lord. It's a faith that worships. But if there is no good news, there is only bad news. The one and a half billion, once with a B, that have no Bible, they have no Bible, no people of God, no gospel, no hope. William Carey said, a man who translated more scriptures than anyone else in India, he said the Bible is the best preacher. Cameron Townsend, who is the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, said the greatest missionary is the Bible in the mother tongue. It needs no furlough and is never considered a foreigner. If you think through your own walk of faith with the Lord, you could not talk about your journey with the Lord without the word of God weaved through that story. Because his story becomes your story. I'll leave you with this. Marilyn Laszlo was translating among the Sepik Iwan people of Hauna village in Papua New Guinea. And some visitors from a distant village came because many of their people were sick and they heard that Ahuna had medicine that they could possibly use. And the headman of this group observed that this village was as they called it. And he asked Marilyn, the translator, and said, could you come to our village and bring us God's book? She said, well, I, I have years of work to do here. It will be a long time before I could come to your village. He said, well, then someone else can come and bring us God's book. 
She said, that's possible, but there are still hundreds of languages in Papua New Guinea, just like yours, waiting for somebody to come and bring them a translation. Yes, sir, could you at least come and visit our village? She said, yes, uh, we, could, we could try to visit. Well, soon after that, they had organized an expedition. As they arrived at the village, one of the first things that Marilyn noticed was a new building in the center of the village. And she asked him about it, and he said, oh, that's, that's God's house. And she said, God's house? Has a missionary arrived? And he says, no, no missionary has come. Well, there is, is there a pastor coming through? No, nobody tells us about God. Then how is it you have built a church? We believe someday, he said, someday soon, someone will come and give us God's book. We want to be ready. We are just waiting. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have brought us into life with you through the gospel. We are beneficiaries of those who were sent and proclaimed and that you gave us the gift of faith. We pray for the nations that you would send people out into your uh, fields that are ripe for harvest and that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would call upon the name of the Lord in response to your great salvation and worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.